On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then, following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Appreciate everybody who's willing to pick up Tom's trash. By the way, before you go, I found some trash up here if anybody wants some more. There you go, everybody. All right. Um, John chapter 20, we're going to be in today. Let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you're in this place, that your word is living and active, that you have a message for not just for us as a group, but for each person tailored to each person as an individual. And so I pray that you would do your work right now through your Holy Spirit, through Christ we pray. Amen. Today I want to talk about hope. It was 30 years ago, April 19th, I'm sorry, April 11th, 1993, Easter Sunday, New Life opened her doors for the first time. We're kind of celebrating that this year a little bit. That's kind of cool. We had 67 people. We're kind of thrilled. Um, Brad Melton, a friend of mine, asked me this past week if I remembered uh, a couple weeks ago, if I remember the first sermon that I preached that Easter Sunday, that first Easter, and I said yes, because I feel like I preached some version of that message every Easter Sunday. The theme was the relevance of the resurrection, because I'm convinced that when people come on Easter Sunday, the one question that they have is, so Jesus rose from the dead, so what? I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but so what difference does it make practical differences it make in our lives right now. There are a lot of different directions we can go with that, and we have in the series. Right now, though, I want to talk about hope. I'm not sure there's anything that we need more than real hope right now. Just think of the number of ways that we say, that we talk about, I hope. I hope I get the job. I hope I get the girl. I hope we meet the deadline. I hope I pass the test. I hope we can get to that school. I hope we have enough money to pay the bills. I hope the sermon isn't too long. I hope they don't have a cat. I hope the future is better for our kids than it is for me. You've probably heard the line of Thoreau who said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation, he said, is confirmed desperation. Our souls feed on hope, and without it, we feel desperate. I found a humorous sign this week. 
thought it was funny. It said, being cremated is my last hope. Being cremated is my last hope for a smoking hot body. That's desperation right there. Any Washington Commanders fans, speaking of desperation. Did you see how the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago had a poll that revealed the Washington fan base, football fan base, is half of what it was just 10 years ago? I don't mean to beat up on the Commanders. Everybody else does. But you didn't appreciate that as much as I did. Everybody else can. It's such an easy thing. But um, that's what happens when you're hopeless. You can just go so many seasons feeling hopeless before you just give up. It's one thing to give up hope on a football team. It's tragic to give up hope on yourself and your dreams, your marriages. Three things everybody needs to be happy, somebody to love, something to do, and something to hope for. Because we are made for relationship, we're made for people, we're made for purpose, and we're made for hope. The good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is... Jesus Christ conquered our greatest enemy, death. And because death has been defeated, there are no hopeless situations. There are no hopeless people. Hope is alive because Jesus is alive. And so we can pray every week, Lord, help me to remember nothing is going to happen to me today that you and I can't handle together. That's hope. And you can have that hope today. John chapter 20 talks about the hope that we have in Christ, that it's a reasonable hope, a merciful hope, a confident hope, a transformative hope, an eternal hope. And if you think I'm going to get through all of those hopes today, you're more hopeful than I am, but we're going to do what we can. I want you to see, first of all, that our hope in Christ is a reasonable hope. We see it from the very first verse. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. Mary gets there, sees it's empty, immediately goes to to, to Peter and John and says to them, the tomb is empty. They've taken his body. I don't know where it is. John never refers to himself. John is writing this book of John, this gospel of John. Never refers to himself by name. This is typical. I I love verse 4 where it says, Peter and John, the two were running together, but the other disciple, John referring to himself, the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Isn't that great? Because there's great theological meaning in the fact that John outran Peter, right? Can't you see John writing that kind of with a smile on his face, sort of letting people know? No, I think the reason that John wrote that actually is because he's wanting to tell you what actually happened. I'm telling you this because I'm literally telling you the story as it unfolded. John arrives first, bends over, looks in, sees the strips of linen, sees the cloth that was around the head separated. Doesn't go in. Verse 6 says, Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. Could you mute this for a second? I've got a tickle. (coughs) Hmm, That didn't work. Okay. Um, See what's happening here? They look into the tomb, and they see it empty, and they do exactly what you and I would do. They start asking questions. I love that word saw in verse 6. 
It's not the normal word in Greek that we'd use for to see. It is the word that we would actually recognize from the Greek. It's theoreo, the word from which we get our word theorize. They're analyzing. It's the word from which we get our word theater. What do you do when you go to the theater? You say you make out in the back row. No, besides that, you are watching and observing and analyzing and trying to figure it out, trying to follow the story. They're reasoning, they're examining, they're accumulating evidence, applying logic. The way this is written, actually you are invited to think along with them. Peter looks inside and he sees the linen is taken off the body, placed there, folded, and the, what was on the head is separated from. And he's thinking, this doesn't make sense. I'm trying to connect the dots. If, if robbers took the body, why would they take the time to take the linens off? The linens that have the expensive spices on it, but the, all those are the linens. The thing about dead bodies is they stink. Why would they take the linens off that are hindering the smell? That makes sense. And if his followers took the body, why would they take the linens off? Because that would desecrate the body. That, why would they want to carry him around naked? It makes no sense that the claws have been left there. He's carefully adding up the evidence. John does the same. It's important for us to think this through because it's easy to fall into the trap of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. You know what chronological snobbery is? He says, it is the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on, out, on that account discredited. Chronological snobbery is looking at the past and saying, our morality is superior just because we've, whoop, just because we've lived after those people. Our thinking is superior, not for any logical reasons, but just because they came before us. And it's easy to look at those people in the first century and think, oh, they weren't very smart. They weren't reasonable like we are. History would tell you otherwise. They were skeptical. They asked questions. They didn't believe in Jesus because it was unreasonable. The Bible invites us to follow that example. In fact, I'm concerned for people who are afraid to ask the questions because they have the weakest faith. I'm so thankful that when I was like fifth or sixth grade, I would stare at the ceiling at night and I would think about eternity. And I would think, you know, I remember having this thought of there, there are probably more people who are dead in the world right now than who, have, who are alive in the world right now. And if eternity is real, it lasts a whole lot longer than this life does. And I don't want to wake up dead someday and meet Allah and have Allah say, why don't you ask questions? There's just too much at stake. Eternity is at stake. Not to ask the questions. So we do ask those questions. I, believe, I agree with Tim Keller who says, Christian faith is obviously more than reasoning, but it is not less. And if your faith is not packed with solid evidence and reasoning, the storms of doubt will knock you over and suffering will eat you alive. There's so much evidence. We can see it in this passage alone. We can look at Mary Magdalene herself, that Jesus appeared first to Mary. In a sense, that doesn't make sense. Celsus was a first century, second century Greek philosopher who rejected Christianity simply because, partially because, Mary 
women were the first eyewitnesses. In every gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, women are the first to witness the resurrection. And Celsus in those first century, second century skeptics would say no intellectual would listen to women because they are gullible in religious matters, quote, and prone to fantasy. Celsius said, how would any rational man listen to the testimony of a, quote, hysterical woman? And so he didn't believe. 2,000 years later, we look back and say, oh, no, no, that's the Achilles heel of the skeptic. Because if you're writing, if you're making up an account, there's no way you make women the first who see the resurrection. It just doesn't make sense. The only reason you do that is because it really happened that way. The Apostle Paul would later on come and say, and, 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 and many are still alive. 500 people saw Jesus at one time, the living Jesus at one time. Many are still alive. You can ask them about what they saw, about what they experienced. How else do you answer the question that the church began in Jerusalem? Thank you very much. Go Caps. They stink this year, don't they? It's true. It's true, they do. Thank you very much. Um, the, um, we can still root for them. But um, where were we? Oh yeah, how do you explain the fact that the church grew to thousands within weeks of the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus in Jerusalem, except that he rose from the dead and there were a lot, lots of people in the Jerusalem area who saw him alive. There's so much evidence. I wish... We had time to go on to more. We can talk about Peter and and John and their changed lives as well, radically changed lives. You know, there were a lot of uh, Jewish leaders who from time to time would come along before and after Jesus and claim to be the Messiah and that they would overcome the Roman Empire and reestablish Jerusalem. Um, Bar Kochba was one of those guys and he was wiped out by the Romans and you know what didn't happen? Well, actually, you know what did happen? Nothing. That's what happened. Nobody said, oh, he must be the Messiah. Nobody said, we've seen him alive. Nobody said, 500 people saw him at one, one time. Why? Because there were some Jewish people that didn't believe in resurrection. There were a whole bunch of Jewish people that didn't believe in a resurrection, but nobody believed in the resurrection of one person. The Jewish idea of resurrection was that it would be every Jewish person would be resurrected at the end of times. Nobody thought of this one. There's so much evidence here. But James and John saw the risen Christ and they were completely changed. I would encourage you to take a look at Jay Warner Wallace and some of the work that he's done recently. Homicide detective who uses his forensic training to answer questions about Christianity. I just want you to know that our hope is reasonable. And you can ask your questions. Second, I want you to see the mercy of our hope. Look at the mercy of Jesus with Mary. Verse 11, Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. As wonderful as Mary's heart is, her problem is this very similar problem to many people today. She's looking for the wrong Jesus. She's not looking for the Jesus as Jesus to find himself. He's, she's looking for the Jesus of her own imagination. She's looking for Jesus who's a good teacher, a good rabbi, even a miracle worker, but she's looking for a dead Jesus, not a risen Savior, Messiah Jesus. 
And so she can't see him. Even though Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Even though Jesus said, I will be killed and raised on the third day. But Jesus then reveals himself to her. And notice how gently, mercifully he does it. If you were Jesus revealing yourself after the resurrection, how would you do it? I'll tell you how I would do it. I would go all Napoleon on him. Remember when Napoleon escaped Elba in, in exile? What did he do? He marches straight to Paris, gathering followers along the way. Even soldiers who came to arrest him joined him. And what did he do? He marched straight into Paris and became emperor, took over the throne again. If I'm Jesus, that's what I do. I go to Pilate and say, hey, Pilate, want to talk about truth now? Let's have a little conversation about truth. I show up in a flash like Superman in front of the Sanhedrin and say, guess who gets to be high priest today? Not Jesus. Verse 19 Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She didn't know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it you're seeking? Why the tears, Mary? Can I help you? See the mercy of the resurrected Christ. Merciful in his attitude, in his approach, but mercy just in the fact that he's pursuing her in his actions as well. Mary's looking for a dead Jesus. I wonder if she, if she ever would have found the real Jesus if Jesus had not appeared to her, if Jesus had not pursued her. When you get to know the Bible, when you get to know God, what you see in Scripture is the entire, the entire story of history is God's pursuit of us. And God is pursuing you in his mercy right now. Do you realize that? God is pursuing you in every sunrise, in the laughter of friends, in, in the people that you call family. God is pursuing you every time you pass a church building or see a Bible or get served by a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here by the invitation of somebody today. Realize that God is pursuing you right now. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. God's pursuing you. Romans 5.8, God proves his own love for us in this while we're still sinners. Christ died for us. God sent his son for us. Behold the mercy of God in that God is pursuing you. We're going to get to heaven someday. And we're going we're to think that, you know, right now it feels like we pursue God. We're going to see, oh, no, no, it was, it was all about God's pursuit of us. How merciful. Notice Jesus' mercy in entrusting Mary with his mission, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, and turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father, to your Father, to my God, to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and she told them what he had said to her. Jesus says, Mary, I have a mission for you. Do you see the mercy? <laughs> he doesn't go to a man who had been respected. He doesn't go to an impressive man. He goes to Mary. Do you remember what Mary used to be? Mary used to be a demoniac. She had five demons in her. 
We're not told exactly how they express themselves in her, but we see demoniacs in the New Testament, and they tend to not make people popular. (laughs) You know, Mary would not have won most likely to succeed in high school. And yet Jesus comes to her, somebody who formerly was, let's say, socially awkward, somebody who was certainly socially rejected, somebody who maybe today we would say had been a reformed mental patient, and yet, to, and yet it's to Mary that Jesus says, I have, a mission, I have a work that I want to entrust you with. Later on, he'll entrust it with other people, with you and me. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. But Mary is the first person with whom he entrusts the most important message of history. Behold the mercy of God. 2 Corinthians 4.1, we've been studying 2 Corinthians, and I just love this passage. Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we have been shown mercy, we do not give up. You realize when Jesus calls you to serve, when Jesus calls you to go make disciples, it is an expression of his mercy. And because he's shown us mercy and entrusts us with his mission, we persevere, we have hope. I hope you will come to the marriage seminar with Joe Beam this weekend. Joe Beam was a minister who was unfaithful to his wife, was dismissed from ministry, unable to find work, became an an addict, addicted to alcohol and drugs. His addiction bankrupted him, he said, financially, spiritually, physically. Sometimes he became a thief so he could feed his next high. One night he overdosed, he completely expected to die. But God had a different plan for him. In God's mercy, his Christian friends showed up. His family showed up. They gave him a job, blacktopping parking lots. Hardest work he had ever had to do, burned himself all the time. He knew he was lost and he needed Jesus. And he found grace in Christians and in Christ, despite his spoiled past. He'd been divorced three years at this point when he goes back to his former wife. She's dating somebody at the time. He appeals to her, asks her forgiveness and to give him another chance. She goes to family, friends. People in church ask wisdom, what should we do? And everybody said, don't go back. Don't trust him. Don't give him another chance. But she did. And they were remarried and have been ever since. Joe Beam says, I'd like to say that they all counseled her to come back to me. They didn't. I just outprayed them. I like that. But then he says, to all of those reading or hearing my story, God can use whoever he wants. It is because of God that I am alive today. And if I can tell people two things, it would be first, don't get caught up in sin. And second, if you do, God can redeem you. And God redeemed Joe Beam. And God redeemed Mary Magdalene. And God can redeem you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some of you come into this place today, and you look at your past, and you feel disqualified. Quite frankly, there are some who probably say, yeah, I'm forgiven, but because of the things that I've done in the past, I'm sure that I've ruined my future that God could never use me as much as he would have if I had had a pristine past. And you need to know 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ means there's hope for you today because of his mercy. Our hope is because of his mercy. Our mission is because he has shown us mercy. Boy, we need mercy today, don't we? Some of us don't know what to experience, how to, experience, how to give it because we haven't experienced it. President Lincoln was one time asked he was, how he was going to treat those rebellious southerners, those traitors when they came back into the Union. The person fully expected him to be full of vengeance and anger. Lincoln said, I will treat them as if they had never been away. We've lost that today, haven't we? Because we've lost the mercy of Jesus. It's not because we're more just. It's because we've lost mercy. But Jesus has mercy for you. And here's the deal. It's hard for people to, exp- to be merciful toward others if they've never experienced it themselves. Jesus turns to Mary and treats her as if she'd never been away and trusts her with ministry. Our hope is reasonable. It is, a, it is a merciful hope, but I want you to know it's a confident hope. Here's the question. How do you hold on to hope when all hope seems lost? How do you have confidence when all confidence is gone? I think this is the wonderful image that God gives us in the three days of Easter weekend. Friday is the day when hope dies. Jesus dies, and it's a day of shock. Saturday Hope is buried. There's no hope in sight. The shock of Friday is over. The hope of the future is nowhere to be seen. But Sunday, hope is alive. Death has been conquered. Now the question is, how do you, how do you sustain, how do you overcome the discouragement and despair of Friday and Saturday? Jesus gives us a wonderful example just to follow him. The first thing that Jesus did, he reached out to people. What did Jesus do before he was crucified, before he was arrested? He got his followers together, his friends together. They shared a meal together, Passover together. They prayed together. The temptation on Friday, when you feel like your dream has died, when you feel like your hope is gone, your temptation is to isolate especially if you're proud and you don't want to open up, especially if you're, if you're shy and it just wears you out to explain. You feel like a loser. Reach out to people. It's what Jesus did. Remember, Jesus said to his friends, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Reach out to godly friends and be open with them about your struggle. Elie Wiesel survived the Holocaust. He was in the concentration camp. A pastor, a Christian pastor asked him, how did you survive? He said two things, God and friends. God and people. But here's the wisdom that I share with you. Friday, the day of the death of the dream, the death of hope, Friday is not the day to try to start building those relationships. You need to have those relationships built right now. You need the church. God has given you his church, his body, his bride to be your people. And I'm so thankful for Christians who have had hope in me when I've lost hope. You need people. What do you do on Saturday? 
On Saturday, you got to hold on. When hope seems buried and there's no hope in sight, I'd encourage you to do three things. First, pray. Jesus gathered his friends together and he said, pray. Remember why he told them to pray? Pray so you won't fall into temptation. Because what's the temptation on Saturday? The temptation is to do the Judas thing on Saturday. Judas acts impetuously. Judas does not wait. He acts rashly. The temptation on Saturday is to be impetuous. But the Bible says, wait in the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait on the Lord. The temptation is to quit the job, to break off the friendship, to get the divorce, to take the drug, to give in to the sin, to look for a geographic solution. Slow it down on Saturday. Wait on the Lord. And hold on to God's promises as well. As you're waiting, what do you hold on to? What allows you to endure the waiting? It is knowing God's promises. You know, there are 7,000 promises of God in the Bible. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. He's the good shepherd. He'll guide you down paths of righteousness, even through the valley of the shadow of death. You need fear no evil, because why? He is, he is with you. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Hold on to his promises and wait. Friday, hope has died. Saturday, hope is buried. But Sunday, hope lives. Jesus is alive. Death has been conquered. To all who feel like you are living in Friday and Saturday, I just want to encourage you, don't give up. It feels like Friday gets the last word. Saturday gets the last word. But Sunday gets the last word. Hold on and run to Jesus. May God be your refuge and strength. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Paul will say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know the power of the resurrection. Don't give up. 30 years. New life. Um, there was one time when I most seriously thought about maybe it's time for me to resign. Um, we had worked on getting land. We did have land on 29. We worked on building there. We didn't raise enough money to build a building there that made sense. And we weren't sure what to do. Didn't have enough money to move forward. Didn't have enough money to do something. But I was being told over and over again after a year of waiting, you got to do something. You got to do something. You got to do something. People got to see you're doing something. And people were getting discouraged. And people started to wonder, are you really serious about getting a building? And so finally, we found this building. Tim Mulcahy found this building, and, and we started to pursue it. And for a couple of years, we pursued it. And, and the elders decided, um, on Monday, we will uh, submit a, a contract. We'll sign the contract for the building. No, actually, they said on Tuesday we'll do that, but we found out on Monday that the owner of the building allowed somebody else to sign a contract on the building. And we were down. And we were waiting. And I was discouraged. And I just wondered, okay, Lord, have you, is just my, your blessing removed from me? I'm, I'm, I don't know. I remember waking up. Have you, ever, have you ever gone to bed or woke up in the middle of the night or in the morning and there's a song that God's put in your mind or a verse of Scripture? I'll never forget. I woke up one summer, one morning that summer, 
And the song that was playing in my mind involuntarily was, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. As we wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as you wait upon the Lord. And I think God was telling me, just wait. Just do the next right thing. You hold on because I've got you. And it was in September that we found out the contract on this building fell through and we were able to sign for this building for a million dollars less than what we would have signed earlier. Some of you right now are on Friday and Saturday and you're tempted to give up. You're tempted to lose hope. And God is saying, Sunday's coming. I wish you could literally hold in your hands right now your feeling, your, your death of your dream, the, the burial, the dream that you feel like you've buried, the hope that you feel like you've buried, and take it to Jesus and know in him Sunday gets the last word. There are no hopeless situations. I think that's the, kind of what the Apostle Paul when he me- means when he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection is what gets us through Saturday and Sunday. Well, ultimately, our hope is meaningful because it is eternal. The Bible tells us that it is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. Our hope is only reasonable. It's only merciful It's only confident because Jesus is alive and in you right now. And I pray you know him today. Easter will always have special meaning in our family, not just because of Easter and Good Friday, but because Good Friday, my grandparents were married 72 years, and Good Friday, the year 2000, my grandmother at 7 o'clock in the morning went on to her reward. And there were many times she had cancer before she passed away. And there were many times that before she'd go to bed at night, when I was able to be up there, I would pray with her and I would say, I sure am glad that we've always lived for eternity. And then, as I shared with you recently, it was six years later that my grandfather was living with us. And it was the night before Good Friday and we were talking about, Grandpa had a good night that night before. It was my son Logan's birthday, and he had a little of, my, uh, of Logan's, Logan wanted peanut butter pie for some reason. Grandpa was a diabetic, had no, no, no business eating peanut butter pie, except when you're 96 years old, you can eat about whatever you want. Um, but we prayed together that night, and we talked about how it was six years earlier on Good Friday morning that his bride passed away. And I got up that next morning and Grandpa had gone on to his reward as well. See, if in this world is our only hope, we don't really have hope. But our hope is real. Because Jesus lives, we will live as well. Because Jesus lives, death doesn't get the last word. Friday doesn't get the last word. Sunday does. And I want you to hold on to that. Wherever you're living in your Friday, in your Sunday, you hold on. 
because Jesus Christ is alive and he's your hope in you. Heavenly Father, I pray, I thank you for the truth of the resurrection. Um, I thank you, Lord, that our hope is not just an intellectual hope. It's not just a theological hope, but it is a personal hope because you came into our story and lived a perfect life and died a real death and conquered death for us. I pray, Lord, for everybody in this place right now who is overwhelmed, who has a sense of their sinfulness and separation from you, that they would come to Jesus and know the joy of forgiveness, the hope that comes when they know their sins have been washed away and they stand before you clean. I pray for everybody in this place. Some are going through Friday right now, Saturday. Some, some are headed for a difficult weekend. Lord, help us to walk with you right now in the confidence of Sunday because you're worthy of that confidence. Through Christ we pray these things. Amen.